Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and this week on the podcast, reporter Riley Snyder sits down with the director of the Governor's Office of Energy, David Bobzian, and the director of the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, Brad Crowell, to chat about an executive order recently signed by the governor that will look into coordinating state agencies in an attempt to further reduce Nevada's carbon footprint. Later, we have a story from KUNR's community health reporter, On Gray, on HIV. She talks to Ivy Spadone, the chief operating officer of a nonprofit community health center in downtown Reno, on starting with the clinic over 20 years ago. At the end of the episode, we have a trivia segment with reporters Michelle Rendells and Riley Snyder on sports. But before all of that, let's first hear a few indie stories I read for broadcast for our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. Originally reported by Michelle Rendells, federal regulators say banks should treat authorized hemp business the same as other legal companies, a move that could help Nevada cultivators. Federal lawmakers legalized the cultivation of hemp when they passed the 2018 Farm Bill, but many banks refused to work with farmers because of strict rules against providing banking services to marijuana businesses. Hemp is a variety of cannabis, but unlike marijuana, hemp does not contain enough of the psychoactive substance THC to get a person high. And in a recent memo, officials at the Federal Reserve, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and others made the distinction. Nevada lawmakers authorized hemp production through a bill in 2015. Today, there are more than 200 hemp growers in the state. Hemp must have a THC concentration no higher than 0.3%, and the Nevada Department of Agriculture can order the destruction of any hemp that exceeds the threshold. Under the provision of a 2017 bill, hemp growers can sell their products, such as CBD oil, to legal marijuana dispensaries. Originally reported by Mark Hernandez, Nevada Senator Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto is co-sponsoring a new bill meant to gather data about suicide rates among law enforcement. During a roundtable event with law enforcement officials and Sparks, Cortez Masto outlined some of the key provisions of the Law Enforcement Suicide Data Collection Act. The measure will require the FBI to collect voluntary, anonymous data on all suicide attempts from local, state, and federal law enforcement. The data will focus on the different factors that contribute to suicide and is intended to be used by the state to pinpoint areas of concern. During the event, officers with the Sparks Police Department explained that law enforcement agencies across the country lost at least 167 officers to suicide in 2018, whereas the number of officers killed on duty was 106. The bipartisan bill was introduced in October and is expected to go to the full Senate for a vote next year. Now on to our interview with David Bobzian and Brad Kroll. And just a note that one of our mics went out during the interview, so please excuse the less-than-perfect audio quality of David and Brad. Okay, so if it's cool with you guys, can you start off by telling me what your name is and what your role is with the state? David Bobzian, Director of the Nevada Governor's Office of Energy. And Brad Kroll, the director of the Nevada Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for being here today. We're here on Monday, the 25th. And it's very fortuitous um, that we're here today because both of you were present in Reno this last Friday for an executive order that the governor signed and released that had to do with the implementation of a Senate bill, SB 254, that was passed in the 2019 session. I guess just to start off with, can you guys kind of go over sort of the background of this executive order in terms of your two offices working together, um, what this does differently than what's in the legislation and kind of what the idea was in getting this signed and, and out to the public? 
Well, the uh, purpose of the executive order, order was really to organize uh, the administration's efforts on climate. Um, Governor Sisolak made it very clear early on in his tenure uh, at the State of the State that uh, he very much recognized the urgency of the climate crisis that we're facing and that this was going to be a priority of his administration. And so as such, uh, you know, back in March, uh, he joined uh, Nevada to the U.S. Climate Alliance, which was uh, a, a very important way of, of, of showing the priority for the administration, certainly uh, his support of SB 254, which sets the targets for uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, in statute and also uh, provides a framework for reporting of Nevada's progress. With with all of that and recognizing that there are you know many more things that the administration can do, this executive order was a great way to just kind of put all of those things together and provide the platform in many ways for a lot of the work and the coordination um, that the administration was already doing. Uh, but if anything, uh, this executive order, again, making it clear that the governor values this work and wants to see us um, make progress on it, brings more players to the table uh, and gives us, I think, a, a wider network of resources, agencies, people, institutions that we can work with uh, together on behalf of Nevada. And I'll just add quickly, in addition to SB 254, the executive order also mentions uh, SB 358, the Renewable Portfolio Standard. So it's a uh, the executive order is intended to build on both of those pieces of legislation and do a broader work on climate change throughout the state to meet greenhouse gas reduction goals consistent with what the UN agreement in Paris uh, included and uh, what is uh, included in the pledge as a member of the U.S. Climate Alliance. And so you mentioned that there's other agencies that are being drawn into this process as part of this executive order. Can you talk about what the executive order might have added in terms of input from other state agencies and what changes or suggestions that it included that weren't necessarily listed as ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that were as part of SB 254? Sure. So for, for one, the Public Utilities Commission will have a, uh, has obviously has the lead role in um, managing the renewable portfolio standard. And so we'll be working with the PUC to make sh- to, to follow the progress and implementation of the renewable portfolio standards so that our other policies outside of electricity generation complement the RPS on the trajectory towards our broader economy-wide greenhouse reduction goals. Um, but there's other little things uh, for interagency executive coordination that are important, like working with NDOT and the DMV to understand, get numbers on VMT, where we can help build infrastructure for electric vehicles, things like that. And then also working with the Department of Administration um, with a focus on all state agencies improving their individual um, operations to be more cognizant of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, both from their operations as well as their programs. And I call that the, you know, the practice what you preach. If the state's going to be pushing a broader economy-wide reduction in greenhouse gases, we have to be doing um, the same thing at the state, uh, at, within state government. Yeah, I guess I'd just add to that, that, you know, again, SB 254 was pretty explicit about the um, the agencies that were to participate uh, in the effort, and as Brad mentioned, include the, 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 the PUC, uh, the Department of Transportation, and the Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, but this uh, EO goes broader than just the SB 254 identified agencies, uh, not just for coming up with the um, the inventory of policies and ultimately recommendations, but also in terms of as as, as Brad mentioned, this, you know, this this leadership position that um, the agencies can take. I mean, we talk about it as as lead by example. So, building energy efficiency, 
all agencies are going to have to look at um, what are the opportunities for uh, retrofit projects, uh, things that can help uh, achieve greater uh, energy efficiencies in the built environment across um, state government. Um, there is also this directive to begin climate risk planning agencies by agency by agency. And so, uh, again, it, it really makes the executive order makes it clear that it's it's everyone has to work together and everyone has to collaborate. And it's not just the agencies. I mean, I think this is also a, a strong message that we as an administration uh, will work with uh, local governments across the state. We will work with uh, tribal governments uh, across the state um, and, and a wide variety of other constituencies, businesses, uh, stakeholders as we uh, go down this path. You had mentioned or, or it was mentioned during the Legislative Committee on Energy that one of the big sectors that's going to be looked at is transportation. Thanks to the RPS and other policies to get rid of coal-burning plants, the biggest carbon-producing sector of the economy is going to be transportation. Can you talk about what, what does that look like in terms of recommendations that might come forward in this report and that you guys will be working on between now and the, the next legislative session? So I think it's important to note again that a lot of this work is ongoing. A lot of the work has been happening, uh, and it just so happens that the you know the executive order gives it a, a new boost to the Nevada Electric Highway is a perfect example. Under Governor Sisolak, it's gained new focus and importance because of the climate imperative. But the Nevada Electric Highway is just one thing that we can be doing to help the emissions question. Certainly transportation electrification, the the shift in consumer preferences is happening in the Nevada Electric Highway, which places EV charging infrastructure throughout the state, uh, particularly in the rural areas, to support uh, EV driving is something for just the passenger vehicles at this point. But it's getting Nevada ready for this transportation electrification future where there's more and more electric vehicles. At the end of the day, it's not just about electrifying transportation, it is about emissions reductions. And so we're going to have to look at other strategies beyond just building charging stations for EVs to really impact change across the transportation sector. Mm-hmm. And and on that note, are, are you guys looking at and will this report or will the state climate report in 2021 include suggestions on dealing with urban sprawl or mass transportation or other ways to reduce emissions that don't just include electric vehicles uh, becoming more adopted? Well, I think as we have conversations, say, for instance, with uh, Christina Swallow at at NDOT, um, she's quick to point out that, uh, you know, VMTs is is one part of it, right? That the trips matter, keeping, staying ahead of just the the growth in in, in trips and and, and miles traveled is important. And if you pair that with emissions reductions, there's a lot of benefit to that. But ultimately, it is a question of, you know, what does the future look like in Nevada? Do we have more transit options available? Um, I think there is a land use um, component to this, and certainly in SB 254, land use is one of the enumerated sectors. Um, you know what those recommendations might look like. I think it's 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 fair to say that as we continue down this road of refining the modeling and understanding exactly what the data is showing us when it comes to the emissions, you know we'll be able to in the future pair that with more specific policy ideas for how to deal with those different aspects of the emissions. Um, one thing I've been curious about ever since we announced that we're going to join this U.S. Climate Alliance and since uh, 254 passed is what are the consequences if we don't hit these emissions goals? I mean, I don't think there's any consequences in 254 saying like, I don't think any heads are going to roll if we don't hit those. But if we don't meet these goals that are in the Climate Alliance, is it just a, we'll try and do better next year? Do the, the black helicopters from the U.N. come and take you guys away or what what happens? Well, I, I think the um, the downside of not meeting our goals is is 
not optimizing the economic opportunity from having these strong targets um, and meeting them. That is positioned very well to build a a clean economy based on renewable energy, um, clean vehicles, mitigation and adaptation activities. And so when we come up short on our goals, we'll be coming up short on some of the economic opportunity. And, you know, we have an obligation. There's a moral obligation in this, too, to our future generations. So while it may not be spelled out in the legislation, I think we all have an obligation to do our part uh, as the Nevadans in the broader picture of addressing climate change. So there may not be punitive things in the legislation, but that doesn't mean we're going to be working any less hard to make sure we meet those targets. And I guess just in closing, both of you know that this, there is a political aspect to climate change and to, to this bill and to tracking emissions. SB 254 didn't receive a single Republican vote. While Governor Sisolak will still be in office next term, and it's likely that Democrats will still be in control of the legislature, I guess to what extent are you trying to make it palatable or to reach out to people on the other side who voted against just emissions testing without any – there's no UN black helicopters coming in, obviously, uh, <laughs> if the emission reduction targets aren't met. But how do you kind of expand this to make it more accessible to people who might be more inclined to not want to – or view reducing emissions or reducing carbon as a worthwhile goal? Riley, I think that Director Bobzin and I, amongst others in the legislature and the governor's office, have – a job ahead of us to do a lot of education for those who didn't uh, vote for the bill, or maybe uh, constituents who didn't support it, and realizing that the the legislation itself and the broader goals that the governor has signed onto are not a threat, but but an opportunity, and it's uh, it's not going to change anyone's way way of life in a negative way, but actually enhance it, and so. That picture is different for depending on what you do for an occupation, where you live in the state. And we're going to be taking all those things into account, but there's going to have to be a lot of uh, more education on the benefits here. And I think we can get there, but it's, uh, you know, there's plenty of conversations still to be had. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that, you know, this administration takes it very seriously, our job to serve all Nevadans. It's not red-blue, it's not rural-urban, um, it's not whatever your background is professionally. You know, this work and this issue uh, impacts all Nevadans. And I think also it's important for us to remember that the opportunities uh, and the benefits of this work uh, can potentially accrue uh, to a broad swath of uh, the state. And so, I mean, as we've said, we're not going to be able to do this work on our own, so it is absolutely incumbent upon this administration to you know, set a, a, a big, big table and make sure that everyone's voice is, is there. And um, you know, that's how we're going to get this done. Is It's about addition, not subtraction. And the inventory is critical. If we don't know where we are, we're not going to be able to know where we need to go. So that's our, our first step here in the very near term, is mm-hmm. the inventory out as a launching point for action. Uh, well, thank you guys so much for appearing on the podcast, and uh, good luck with the report and everything else going on. Thanks, Thanks Riley. Happy to do it. All right, and now we have a story from our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. As a community health center, Northern Nevada Hopes in downtown Reno offers a variety of medical services. When it opened in 1997, it served as a clinic to treat patients with HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus. Chief Operating Officer Ivy Spadone started with the clinic as a physician's assistant two decades ago and continues to provide care to HIV patients. She shared her story with KUNR's community health reporter, On Gray. My name is Ivy Spadone. I am the Chief Operations Officer at uh, Northern Nevada Hopes. I am also uh, trained as a physician assistant, and I specialize in HIV care. When Hope started in 1997, 
we couldn't even advertise that we were an HIV clinic because of the stigma related to HIV. We had patients who would park across the street and walk to clinic because they didn't want people to see their car in the parking lot of an HIV clinic or the HOPES clinic. The stigma was pretty prevalent at that time and is still prevalent at this time. You'll be surprised in 2019 when there are still significant amounts of people who say, well, I don't want to live with this person who has HIV because I'm afraid that it, by sharing eating utensils, I could get HIV. So the education piece is important. The care for our HIV-positive patients have really morphed into more like a chronic disease management, like taking care of somebody with diabetes or um, hypertension. I think the turning point for HIV management was when we started having one pill once a day medication that have minimal side effects. Patients will tell me, one pill once a day, you know, it's like taking a vitamin. So at HOTS, we are seeing increasing number of HIV-positive individuals. We're not seeing increasing number of newly diagnosed HIV patients. Um, a lot of people that are new to us move here. Uh, we see patients that come from California because the housing situation is dire there, and they think they're getting cheaper housing here, not realizing that it's not it's better, but it's not that much better. Uh, we are seeing the economy growing and we're seeing people moving to the area for jobs and they're coming here for their HIV care. We still see young, newly diagnosed men who have sex with men. And that's a, a population that could easily be targeted for prevention of HIV infection. Back then, it was really, we lost more patients related to their HIV and AIDS than we do today. We still lose patients today. My HIV patients in the last 20 years have taught me so much. They've taught me that I am so lucky to have what I have. It's taught me to see everybody, every person has a story and every person is an individual. There are just things that happen to our HIV patients that are uh, unimaginable to me. One of the more gratifying things is that the connection that I have with my patients. I see them and they see me and I know their history from 20 years ago that they might not even remember. Uh, and they give me a big hug and they say, it's so nice to see you. I'll see you back in six months because my HIV is under good control. And, uh, Thanks for everything that you've done for me. I think that is the best thing. That was Ivy Spadone with Northern Nevada Hopes. That story was originally produced by KUNR's public health reporter, On Gray. To learn how the rise of STDs nationwide is affecting our community, go to KUNR's website, KUNR.org. All right, I'm here with Nevada Independent reporter Michelle Rendells. Uh, Michelle is a lot of things, an excellent reporter, a wonderful cook, but one thing she is not is a sports fan. So I have a couple of questions um, for Michelle that have to do with sports, and we're going to see how well she knows 
about football, basketball, baseball, and everything else. Oh, I thought this was just football. Oh no, it's everything. Oh, so, gosh. first question: What does the worldwide leader in sports, ESPN, actually stand for? Expected Sports Players Network. Uh, close. Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. Oh, okay, very close. Yeah, they uh, had their name in the '70s, and now they're just known as ESPN. Um, Another question for you is, uh, this was the NFL's Most Valuable Player Award recipient last season. He played for the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, what is his name? J.J. Watt. Nope. John Gruden. He's a coach okay. of the Raiders. Uh, Russell Wilson. Uh, close. It's a quarterback. Okay. Um, one more guess. Antonio Brown. No, he's... Uh, wide receiver who's out of the league. It was Patrick Mahomes. Ah, uh, Patrick. Is the quarterback. How could I forget? How could you forget? Um, so this is an interesting question. What NBA team has the longest active playoff drought? That would be the Sacramento Kings. <gasps> You're right! <laughs> Joey, make sure there's like a bunch of ding-ding-dings going off. Uh, <laughs> I'm a diehard Kings fan, so mm-hmm. unfortunately it's been a rough... 15 or so years for me. 13 years. 13 years. Okay. The 2006 season was the last time they were in the playoffs. Um, Here's a fun question. Can you name every big four American professional sports team that is named after cats? The Sabretooth Tigers. Uh, Nope. The Jaguars. Yes. The Tigers. The Bengals. They go by their name, the Bengals, Uh not the Tigers. Uh, Are we only in football? Um, the Tigers are a baseball team, but the Bengals yes. are a football team. Are we in football or, or all of them? All sports. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to say the Lions, the Detroit Lions. Uh-huh. Um, we've got the, uh, Carolina Panthers. Yes. And we've got, uh, the Sharks and we have the... <laughs> the Sharks are not a cat. Uh, okay, the, think of animals. You've gotten all of them except for one hockey team that shares a name with a football team. Uh, shares a name with a football team. Uh, it's not the Panthers. It is the Panthers. The Panthers. Oh, okay, it's okay. the Florida Panthers. Good job. I didn't know that was a, a hockey team. I didn't Good to know, know either, team. but that is according to the <laughs> quiz I found online of all sports teams named after cats. Um, who was the head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights? That would be Marcia So. No. Uh, it would be John Mark Fleury. Uh, I think that's the goalie. I don't think he got his name 100% right. Very close. Wayne Gretzky. Uh, no. That'd be cool, though. It is uh, Gerard Gallant. Oh, wow. I'm probably saying that wrong. Never If you have uh, issues with my pronunciation, please email Joey. Um, <laughs> Michelle, you're also from Northern California, so you're a big 49ers fan. Huge 49ers fan. Huge 49ers fan. Who was the current... Starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Did I say Russell Wilson? Um, you did, and he's the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. Okay. Um... <laughs> he used to back up Tom Brady. Oh, of course. Yeah, J.J. Watt. Uh, <laughs> again, he's a defensive end for the Houston Texans. <laughs> Shoot. Um, One more guess. How about Steve Young? Steve Young has been retired for more than a decade. It is oh, no. Jimmy Garoppolo is the starting quarterback. Uh... It was on the tip of my tongue. It was on the tip of your tongue. Um, The final question, um, less of a question, more of a task, is I would like you to pronounce this name. This was the winner of the NBA's Most Valuable Player Award. 
last year. He plays for the Milwaukee Bucks, and his name is Giannis Antetokounmpo. Close. Antetokounmpo. Giannis. Antetokounmpo. I can't even do it. Antetokounmpo. Sure, I think that's close enough. Okay, great. Yeah, excellent. From Serbia. Um, no, he's from Greece. Greece. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I think you did pretty well, Michelle. Good job. Thanks, Riley. I really studied up for this quiz, Uh so I'm glad I should. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank David Bobzian and Brad Carl for joining us on this week's episode. I'd also like to thank KUNR's On Gray for her always fantastic community health reporting. And of course, I'd like to thank Riley and Michelle. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, criticism, or praise, you can let me know by emailing me at joey at thenvindie.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at thenvindie.com. Our original theme song is from Reno band People With Bodies, and you can hear more of their music on Spotify. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we will talk to you next week.